Board Game Binge. The place where we bring you bite-sized, bingeable board game content across the industry. I'm your host, James Staley, and in this episode, we're chatting with Dane Chapin, founder and CEO of USAopoly, also known as The Op. Over the years, he has been the driving force behind the creation and ownership of numerous successful businesses spanning various industries. Dane, welcome to The Binge. How are you doing, sir? I'm doing great. It's great to be here. Uh, we've been wanting to have you on this podcast for quite some time. Clearly, I think being a leader in the industry, it makes a lot of sense. Um, I want to kind of go back to the beginning of your story because I know you your, your career has been decades, right? And you've been involved in so many things. Um, but, you know, for the board game industry, I kind of want to go back to the, you know, the formation of the op and kind of where that all started. Can you take us through kind of how you started this company and kind of the story behind that? Uh, yeah, it wasn't, it was, uh, it wasn't by design, trust me. You know, I've got these friends in college, they knew, you know, by their, into their freshman year, exactly what they were going to do in life. And uh, I had no idea what the hell I was going to do in life. I was a college tennis player and all I wanted to do was play tennis. And uh, this, this ties to it. There was a famous tennis player. And this is, you know, this goes back to, you know, 1980. And the number one guy in the world was a guy named Jimmy Connors. And, uh, you know, most people look at me, uh, you know, sort of cross-eyed, go, who's Jimmy Connors? So Jimmy Connors is literally, you know, uh, Roger Federer of the day. And he was a world celebrity, you know, and all the tennis players yeah. in those Bjornborg and Jimmy Connors were world celebrities. And he's seven years older than I am. And he showed up at one of our tennis practices. He had gone to UCLA his freshman year. Uh, so he's like 27, 28, shows up at our practice and stayed close with our coach. And he was my hero. So here was my hero on the tennis court right next to me. And so the coach assigns courts. And so Jimmy, you're on court one with our number one player who had a huge serve. That's part of the story. Uh, Dane, you're on court two. So all of a sudden, I'm adjacent to Jimmy um, on this, you know, across the court. And I'm like, oh, my God, this is the highlight of my life. And Fritz had a huge serve. And if I would return a serve, I'd stand like 10 feet behind the baseline, and you know, block it back. And, uh, you know, I want to keep in mind, I wanted to be a professional tennis player more than anything in life. And um, so Jimmy's getting ready. We're starting our set. Jimmy's getting ready to serve. You know, I'm not paying attention to my guy. All I want to see is my hero next to me on the court. And he's standing on the baseline getting a return Fritz's serve. I'm like, hold it. How do you stand on the baseline? And the return of serve for Jimmy against this guy who had a world-class serve, it was an offensive shot. And I saw one shot and I said, I'm never going to be a professional tennis player. You know, the guys on our team, a bunch of them played pro tennis and we were sort of bound to, you know, a lot of the guys, the best players. And I was knocking on the door and I thought there's a gap I'm never going to catch up to. Yeah. And I started getting better grades. Uh, actually, didn't play tennis my senior year. Kind of got serious that I, you know, I had to figure out life after tennis. And uh, so ended up doing a bunch of different jobs. Uh, worked in the film business. Stumbled into a real estate career for seven or eight years. Real estate went sideways in the early 90s. I was trying to figure out what the hell to do. And my sisters had this idea. So I got to give credit to my sisters. I just sort of stumbled into their their wake or their raising the rising tide. My sisters are super marketing oriented, you know, less, you know, business. Uh, I don't want to say business savvy, but you know, they weren't accountants and uh, what have you. Um, and so anyway, they invited me to join this little fledgling business. Um, 
And soon, and they were doing these knockoff Monopoly games. And then soon after that, we managed to approach Hasbro with the idea, well, let's knock off the knockoffs. And so they had a bunch of more reasons to do it legally than making any money out of it. So they gave us this two-year license to do city editions of Monopoly. Um, and uh, the rest, as they say, is history. And we went from having this two-year license. Now it's uh, we're in our 30th year with them, and it's expanded well beyond city editions. It expanded. You know, nine, two years later, we managed to get a convince them to let us do an Olympic edition of Monopoly. Yeah. And then um, – Met the CEO at Hasbro in 96. He said, you guys are great. What do you want to do? They gave us a five-year license, and they expanded sort of our grant to go beyond cities. We got Harley-Davidson, I remember, and NASCAR and the sports leagues. And then it wasn't that long after that uh, we got you know rolled into pop culture. And it was all twists on Monopoly. Then we started doing twists on Clue, and it's branched out into doing uh, – you know, all their different, uh, a lot of their different IP from, you know, operation. And now we have a Grinch operation and Shrek. And uh, and now we're doing a lot of our own IP. So we've expanded from uh, my two sisters, me and a secretary in 1994. We're 75 people and sell games internationally. So it's been a pretty exciting ride. A lot of yeah. fun. When you originally uh, approached Hasbro, was there any doubt in your mind that they would say yes? Like, I got to imagine at that time, It'd be going through my mind. These guys are just going to take the idea and run with it themselves. You know, it's uh, Jesus, thirty plus years ago. I had every <laughs> every doubt in my mind. I, you know, I thought I thought it was sort of ridiculous uh, uh, that we were even approaching them. But I, I guess the timing was perfect and the idea. And they were worried about you know more copyright issues. So if they'd let these knockoff games sort of pro- proliferate in the market, mm. it would weaken their copyrights. Um, and, uh, so we managed to get this very narrow grant, uh, that expanded we started making them money and, you know, really they're more specialized to turn on the presses and do, you know, minimum 250,000 games and have bigger brands, yeah. uh, and to focus in the niches and, uh, that we were focused on doing the things we were doing, you know, they could, they could have their cake and eat it too. They could uh, protect their copyrights, expand their copyrights, uh, and they could actually make more money on the licenses, license fees we were paying them than they could have done it themselves. It just, it's, it, the, the nature of our business then was really not geared to, for a Fortune 500 company to do it mm. effectively. So they were, it was very smart of them to, you know, trust us, which they did, thankfully. And I guess that trust has paid off. I mean, we've been working with them for 30 years. We might be the longest uh, tenured licensee that they've got. I should check that, but it's, yeah, it's pretty exciting to think, you know, we've, you know, and the turnover at the big corporations with people moving up the ladder. And, you know, so we've worked through a lot of different people over that time. We've managed to, you know, maintain those relationships. And, uh, you know, I don't know what the magic to it is, but we've been really engaged with them. And I, I don't think that relationship's ever been better. And the people they have working on our business and the collaboration they get internally um, is really gratifying. And it's been great for us. On the flip side, in dealing with some of these cities and in, in, in licenses, was there any resistance there at all? Or was there almost like kind of welcoming with open arms, like, you know, finally somebody's coming to us with a, an addition for our particular city? You know, the the great thing we had going for us, you know, you think about Monopoly and, uh, you know, you're a Canadian, so you might think yeah. Monopoly was developed in Canada as a Canadian game. I certainly know people, you know, you come, you know, meet uh, people from uh, Brits or whatever, and they think it's no Monopoly started here. It's based on London streets, 
And yeah. people, you know, there's international versions all over the world. And people think often that it was uh, developed in their country. And it was actually based in Atlantic City. Um, this guy invented this game in the mid-30s. Um, and Monopoly is really an international icon. I mean, it's, you know, in its world, it's huge. Yeah. So when Hasbro said to us, hey, let's go get licenses, you know, we would show up at the NFL or Major League Baseball or whatever it might be, or Disney. And we were, you know, a major thing we had going for us, we were unique. So it wasn't like it being a T-shirt licensee where you're competing, you know, on sort of a commodity product with eight other capable companies. Nobody else had the Monopoly brand. So it gave us sort of a unique, uh, you know, unique uh, uh approach into the business and it allowed us to develop these relationships, you know, as a young company and really elevated our standing with, you know, and we had access to anybody. Um, so really we had this huge advantage um, of getting access to whether it was, you know, the national football league or Disney or Warner brothers. So it was a huge help. And then what year did you end up leaving the company? Because, I mean, for our audience that doesn't know, I mean, you haven't always been with the op, right? You left for, I think, at least a decade, right, before coming back. When yeah. was that that you left? Well, hard to believe. I, I stepped away sort of by accident. I had always wanted to get back to real estate. When, you know, it, uh, working on this thing with my sisters, I said, oh, this thing has a five-year run and I'll bridge, uh, yeah. you know, how many Monopoly games could you do? And, you know, we just, our, our imagination really hadn't, started to kick in yet about where this thing could go. Uh, I thought, Oh, you know, maybe it'll be a five year run. I'll roll back into real estate. So that was 94. Uh, I got approached by this young guy in San Diego with some stuff that he was doing around. And there was a lot of distress in real estate in 08. And, uh, you know, it, it really uh, piqued my interest. So I gave him some financial backing and uh, some sort of adult supervision, if you will, with no thoughts of leaving USAopoly. And before I knew it, this little company we started, Zephyr Partners, a real estate business in, uh, based in North County, San Diego, started to take off. And I was like, oh, I mean, it was kind of overwhelming what we were doing. And our timing had been perfect. We didn't have legacy problems. And there was a lot of distress in real estate. So I stepped away from the op in like 09. Um, not really with the intention of coming back. It continued to grow. And so 09 until the beginning of uh, 2021. So I stepped back in. Um, and I, it's been a hell of a two-year ride, and I, I, I'm so happy I stepped back in. I, I've never been more energized professionally in my life. I'm trying. I'm kind of driving people at our office nuts, uh, just with all my ideas. I'm sort of an idea guy, so it's been a lot of fun. And uh, you know, shifting the culture back, we sort of got risk averse. Yeah, we were still innovating. Yeah. Uh, by nature, I'm a pretty aggressive, risk-taking guy. Um, and it's just been fun to step back in. And, uh, and I think the, the, the culture starting to align my way of thinking and thinking audaciously and the, the things we can do. So it's been pretty exciting, uh, year and a half and it's really starting to gel. I mean, we've got currently on Amazon, which is sort of a proxy for, you know, how games are selling in the country all over. Yeah. We've got the top three, one, two, three, top three, and it fluctuates a little every day. So if somebody goes, checks my math you know maybe it's one two and five yeah uh, but right now we've got the one two and three uh, family party games on uh, and on amazon blank slate uh hughes and cues and then our uh classic game that we've had around 12 illustrations. 13 illustrations yeah. so it's been it's been really gratifying and 
and exciting. I wish I could take credit for the development of those games. A little when, credit for Telestrations, but the others were developed before I came back. When did the op pivot into uh, going beyond like the, the you know the Monopoly editions and into party games and then the next stage was then obviously into kind of classic hobby games when did that occur and what was the kind of lead decision that, that drove that you know it's been sort of a slow hit and miss process and it really started in earnest when we uh, developed um telestration so I'm, this is before i stepped away so this must have been god was it 07 mm. um so anyway this uh, guy who worked for us now with this anymore and we have a lot of gamers find their way to USA Apple. So they're these huge hobbyists that love games and they maybe they're graphic artists or cre often creatives. Um, and, you know, they find their way to USA Apple because they, they can turn their passion into, you know, uh, a paycheck. Um, so this guy walks him out and says, Dane, I've got this game I want to show you. I said, What's it called? Well, it doesn't have a name. Where'd you buy it? Well, we made it up. And I said, what do you mean? You made it up. She said, yeah, it's, so he pulls out these post-it notes and a pen and says, here's how the game works. We put a clue in the middle or put clues and people randomly draw the clues. And then if you, I'm sure a lot of your viewers have played Telestrations, but the, so if you have eight people sitting around a table, everybody's got this little sketch pad. So think a little, they have their own little uh, you know, post-it note pad and they each have a clue. So you got to draw your clue. And now the clue goes to the person next to you that you drew and they've got to guess what it is. So it goes from, uh, uh, sketching to guessing to sketching and it works its way around the table like the telephone game and um, it's truly one of the funniest things so we thought you know this could be a game we came up with a name and launched it a couple of years later and did an enormous amount of missionary work and it took years for it to really start to gel mm -hmm. uh, but it became a, a staple and we got it into target 10 years ago and uh, you know, from there, we started to, you know, six, seven years ago, started really thinking in earnest about, you know, complementing our our uh, our inventory with uh, our collection of stuff with our own IP. So we really have the best of both worlds. We've got this great relationship with Hasbro. Uh, we can really leverage their IP, which has an enormous amount of value. It gives us, you know, strategically, it gives us a lot of advantages if it was just a strictly IP company. And then having our own IP is, you know, it's think about being a renter versus an owner, you know, so we get the benefits yeah. of being an owner with our own IP and, but we have access to, you know, all the, the most uh, best IP in the world. So. Did I read, I thought I read somewhere that Telestrations, there was an idea to, to turn that into like a TV show or something like this is, did I read that correctly? I, I didn't know that hit the press, but uh We've been in discussions for a while. We launched a digital version that's uh, you can find on you know, the Apple Store. Really fun to play. We just launched that, so we'll see where that goes. Um, and we do. We've been talking about it for a long time. So we're. Uh, it's a little early to announce anything, but yeah, uh, sure. 2024 might. Uh, you know, we'll see. <laughs> yeah. When you came back to the op, what was the key uh, decision? Like, what made you come back? Oh, I, I think there was, you know, we were a profitable company doing well and I had a vision for it uh, that uh, maybe didn't match up with our leadership at the time in terms of where we could take in the, and what we could do. And uh, so that really drove me to come back. 
and you know, and uh, one, uh, so for instance, you know, we started the digital game because of that, that we've been looking at for a long time. Or we have a blank slate television show. We're partnered with Game Network. Mario mm. Lopez is going to be the host, and it launches in January. So they, we've already uh, recorded 63 episodes. Wow. So that's exciting. We're uh, we're doing a deal with Metaverse in, uh, in partnership with a company called Nerd Ninjas, who uh, developed the Dice Throne game. Yeah. So they have an amazing CEO, Nate Chatelier, out of Spokane, and he's you should have him on sometime. He's got a great story. God, I mean, it's just, I love this guy. He's become like a brother or maybe a nephew to me or something. I guess I'm old enough to be his dad, but we've developed a great relationship. And uh, so we uh, we were working with them on this Dice Throne game. They were having trouble getting a Marvel license. Uh, and we, you know, we're in, we have a great relationship with Disney and, and Marvel and so we partnered doing a Dice Throne version of uh, Marvel. And we just launched on, uh, speaking of Kickstarter, which we talked about before the show, yeah. uh, uh, we, we just launched on Kickstarter, had an enormous success with an X-Men Dice Throne version uh, that'll come to. So they're doing sort of the Kickstarter portion of it. We bring the license to it, and then we'll take it to uh, retail. And so we have really uh, a great strategic partnership with Nerd, Nerd Ninjas. And they're really a best in class. And we developed with them uh, the Telestrations uh, uh, digital or uh, the mobile app. So it's been a great partnership. So as part of you coming back is kind of, because it, it sounds like almost like a transition, right? Of, of, you know, transcending kind of the, you know, traditional analog way of playing games and kind of taking some of this IP and bringing it into these other mediums. Was that kind of the key thing that uh, was really your goal coming back? I'll tell you, my goal coming back is uh, it sort of crystallized in the last couple of months. And it crystallized. I didn't know it as much as I knew it. I just read Elon Musk's new book by Walter Isaacson. And here's a guy who, are, in the history of the human race, there's been 100 billion human beings that have walked the earth. Yeah, uh, Kind of an amazing stat. And he's arguably, um, I'll tell you funny, I, I had an argument last night about this. And I said, uh, arguably, um, he's one of the greatest innovators of all time. I mean, he's completely disrupted two of the hardest industries to disrupt, most capital-intensive industries, autos and space travel. Yeah. And um, the, the audacity of how we did it now, you know, he's a little rougher around the edges than I am. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, my wife will tell you I'm the nicest guy on the planet. I believe her. Uh, so <laughs> I'm going to... You know, I'm going to work in a more collaborative fashion, I think, than Elon might. But I got to tell you, this guy has so inspired me by when you think about the difficulty of space travel. So he launches SpaceX in you know, like 2004, 2005. Here it is, you know, less than 20 years later. The globe, the world, you know, all the countries of the world from uh, the U.S. to Europe uh, to Russia, China. We're gonna, the world, mankind is going to launch 2,000 tons of uh, payload into space. So it's satellites, it's water for the space station. Uh, SpaceX this year is going to carry on their boosters 80% of it. So to yeah. me, it's almost unimaginable. And it's you know changing mankind and they're lowering the cost of getting payload into space because it's extremely expensive. And so I had uh, dinner last night with my, and I'm not trying to name drop. So, but no, no, that's Gary, okay. Yeah. Drop uh, away. Gary, I've um, I've become very good friends with Gary Kasparov, the former chess champion. Yeah. Uh, um, and he's in New York. I'm in New York. So we had dinner last night with our wives. And so he took issue with the fact that I, I called Elon maybe one of the top five 
greatest innovators of all time and trying to tell him to read the book. And he's shaking. He said, you know, Dane, there's this, there's this, there's this. And I said, okay, how about the, one of the top 100 innovators of all time? He said, okay, I'll give you that. He's one of the top 100. So I said, okay, that makes him one in a billion. And I said, here's a guy that's among us, you know, in his prime of his career, changing the world. Yeah. And, um, and I just, it's gotten me. And those are the reasons I came back, but I didn't know it. It really crystallized for me as I'm reading his book that, you know, let's, there's, there's fun with being audacious, you know, having these crazy goals. And if we don't reach them, maybe we're going to reach a lot higher than we otherwise would have. Uh, and that's kind of my nature anyway, to kind of stretch beyond. I've done it since I was a kid. You know, I was over my head playing tennis at UCLA and, you know, came to discover it when Jimmy Connors showed up. Um, so I don't know. I want to push the boundaries and have some fun and look back at some point in my life and just, you know, kind of with a grin and just say, I didn't leave anything on the field. And certainly Elon doesn't. And, uh, and that's why I came back. I didn't want to leave anything on the field. And I think there's a huge opportunity to be disruptive and do some crazy fun stuff and and fun along the way. And, you know, make a bunch of dedicated, I've got a ton of people who worked at USAPLE for over 20 years and they, yeah, they do well. I want them to do great. And uh, if I can put a big check in their pocket someday and, uh, we were having a conversation internally recently about some comp stuff. And we have on our board is John Eiler, former CEO of uh, Toys R Us. He retired to San Diego and we got reunited. And I tell you, I had more fun with this guy every day. And he's kind of living vicariously through me. And, you know, he's 76, 77, whatever. But he's, we're just having a lot of fun. And, um, and I said, John, one of my goals is, you know, if we ever sell this thing, I want to five years later run into somebody that worked for USAopoly and they come up to me and they just thank me and just say, you know, Dane, I love what you did for us and for me and for the company. And that's kind of, and he was really taken with that. He sent me a note later. And uh, that's really how I want to run this thing. I want to run into somebody, you know, who knows what our journey is going to be on this thing. Uh, yeah. But I, I just want to, I want to just, I don't want to leave anything on the field. It's uh, it, from you know, seeing your, your your profiles and and you know a lot of the things written about you. Coaching seems to be a real uh, integral part of kind of the way you operate. Is that is that fair to say? Like you, you seem to do a lot of you know entrepreneur type um, you know guest lecturing and things like that, and and even coaching with your team. Is this something that that's important to you? And how have you kind of built that into your day to day work life? You know, I'm I'm finally getting used to it. But if, when somebody, when people started to call you sir, you know, you're, you know, I was tough to swallow because I always felt like I was the youngest guy and yeah. and the kid and the kid in the room. And so, you know, when people start calling you sir, it's uh, it's still you know. But let's face it, I got some gray hair. I'm not a kid anymore. And at some point, you sort of start your life transitions from being, you know to being a coach too. I'm in the game, but I'm also uh, I'm player coach and I've gotten actually really comfortable with it. And I, I, you know, I've got, you know, 40 years of experience uh, doing this and uh, I'm starting to, you know, it, sort of recognize that I do have things that I can share that will benefit people. Um, it's kind of been a weird transition, but I've gotten really, uh, I, I kind of like it, you know, and I, and I, sometimes I'll say something to somebody and I'll say, you know what? I, that was good advice, or but it it's come with. You know, I, I was recently having a conversation with my wife, just saying, you know, what what is it you you know you attribute to some of the stuff you're doing, your some of your success in being an entrepreneur? I I had an immediate answer that surprised her. Oh, sorry, let me turn that off. 
And I said, getting up. And she said, what do you mean getting up? I said, I had so many failures and things that didn't work. But I don't know. Some of this stuff should phase me more than it does. And it's, I'm actually getting more ability to just not pay attention to it. And I just get up and, all right, well, that didn't work. Let's, uh, we'll, we'll figure this thing out. So I think that's my number one attribute is just getting up. What's one so, of the biggest failures that, uh, that kind of sticks with you that you keep reflecting back on saying, you know, that was a big one, uh, but also probably a big learning as well. You know, I'd like to point that's always external circumstances. I mean, uh, you know, in 1990, you know, I had to get up playing tennis at UCLA. Jimmy Connor shows up. I spent, you know, I'm one of those 10,000 hour guys. I spent four or five hours a day, you know, from the time I was 12, 13 years old, trying to be a pro yeah. tennis player. And, you know, it, it was a splash of cold water in my face um, when he came to our practice. And it made it, there was just too big a gap. And, you know, people said, well, dang, you could have just worked hard. And my heart and my head lined up, you know, my, my heart wanted it so bad. My head kind of knew I wasn't going to, you know, I wasn't headed in that direction. And finally you see it so obvious, it hit me in the face and I had to get up, you know, and I was a smart enough kid, but I, I was not applying myself in college. So, you know, started to get better grades. So, you know, that was, got up, uh, you know, I, I've gone through a divorce in life where it was really tough and didn't want it and got up from that and in business in 19, you know, 90, 91, 92, uh, the real estate market. I mean, it was in a depression. I was in this development business, 30 year old guy, uh, 32 maybe. And yeah, my world, my world crumbled and, uh, I had to get up from that. I mean, I literally went through a year of my life, just, you know, saw no light at the end of the tunnel. Wasn't suicidal, but you know, I was in, I was tough getting up every morning, and yeah. I knew baby and trying to figure out what to do. Um, yeah, we've had game ideas that have failed. And, you know, I've nobody's been responsible for more losing more money with you know ideas that didn't work at USAopoly. Now, thankfully, I've had a few good ones that have made up for it. What's uh, the biggest swing you guys took that uh, just didn't play out? Well, I'll tell you one that almost didn't play out that turned into a positive. So, um, you know, we got our license in 94. Um, it's 95. The Olympics are coming to Atlanta in a year. And um, so we start telling Hasbro, and this is when we had the grant for just doing city editions. We said, and one of the reasons we had done Atlanta as one of our chosen cities, we had in the back of our mind, we wanted to do an Olympic edition of Monopoly based on the Atlanta Olympics, 1996. And so we started pitching Hasbro on the idea of doing an Olympic edition of Monopoly. So they called us three months before the Olympics and said, you know what, this is a good idea. Let's do it. And we're like, guys, it takes six or seven months to develop a Monopoly game. And it, there's just a lot of complexity to it. It seems sort of simple and it's on a template. And uh, But we weren't going to not take this swing. So I fly to Atlanta, meet with the organizing committee, the, the properties group that's doing all the licensing. And they said, we'd love to do a Monopoly game. You know, there's your advantage. Nobody else could compete doing a Monopoly game. We're the only ones that could do it. Um, and we literally worked, my sisters and I and uh, staff, we were small staff then, but we were working around the clock to make this thing happen. I was, it was before, uh, you know, we were sending uh, overnight stuff on Southwest Airlines. They had a flight that nonstop from San Diego to Boston. Uh, and so we would put the comps on it. They'd get it in the Providence offices the next day. And the CEO started looking at, you know, our iterations, our design iterations, how to do the game. So we got to go from them. And the CEO was watching this thing play out. 
um, we get a, we get this game, we go into production, we're trying to figure out how much to make. And don't forget, we're a tiny little company. We decided to make 35,000 games. I don't know why that was a magic number, but we literally bet the company on it. Wow. Um, and my, you know, my dad's provided the seed funding, a hundred thousand bucks, uh, to start us in 1994. And I didn't, you know, so I was, you know, trying to figure out 35,000 games and by, Three weeks before the Olympics, we had orders for 5,000 games, but the Olympic organizing committee was going to order 20,000 games. So I kept waiting for the PO to come. PO comes two weeks before the Olympics for 90 games, 9-0, 90 games. And they, you know, part of our 35, and I don't know what the hell to do. I just told the sales crew, I'm on the phone, banging the phone. I go to the Atlanta a week before the Olympics. And I get down there. I said, you know what? We should ship all the games down here. We'll have them in a warehouse for the stores that we've got. We can yeah. restock them overnight. And uh, and I'm doing a bunch of press stuff, walking, you know, through Olympic Village. And I have a game under my arm about two days before the Olympics are starting. We still have, you know, maybe we're up to 6,000 sold games. And this guy stops me. He said, what's, what's that under your arm? I said, oh, it's an Olympic Monopoly game. He said, can I see it? I said, yeah. He said, that is the coolest thing. He said, where can I get one? And I said, I'm, you know, like Riches or some of the sporting goods stores. And I said, you know what, just take my game. And the guy said, take your game. I said, well, yeah, this, this is my company. And. You know, this is what we're doing. Everything. He says, look, I can't take your game. I said, well, I'll tell you what, pay me for it. And uh, wholesale price was 20 bucks. And I said, uh, here, just pay me the wholesale price, 20 bucks. And, you know, rips off a 20, no big deal. Light bulb goes off in my head. So I'm about to have, you know, this, uh, my life flashing before me to I get a dolly and I get a tread or, uh, and I rent a van. And I, I have a photo of it. Um, I should show you guys um, somewhere. Uh, and I ended up selling 20,000 games by hand on the streets of Atlanta over the next two weeks. Holy smokes. Uh, it was a Herculean effort, but uh, it was, uh, you know, got it done. And uh, so that was, you know, John Eilert used to likes to say it can either be magic or tragic. And we went from tragic to magic. Uh, and so that's, you know, I forget what your question was, but I think it's no, it's good. That no, was the biggest swing. That's a huge swing. I mean, you had literally you bet the, the the company right on that one decision, and yeah, uh, we bet the company, and it almost uh, you know turned against us. And uh, I don't know. There's a little luck and serendipity. You know, one of the things I do in life really well is connect the dots. So I, you know, yeah. I have a, have a big network of people, and you know, I just seeds get planted into my head. And then some, you know, little uh, water gets sprinkled on a couple of years later, and I'll think about, oh, I had that experience. And you know, there's an interesting a story about radiologists I recently read. You know, AI is becoming a big part of you know reading yeah. X-ray. Yeah. And in this story, and maybe it's going to change, but the story made the case that you're better off having like a 60-year-old radiologist read your X-ray than AI, and you'd rather have AI read your X-ray. If you have a 30-year-old radiologist, even with all their training, and I'm beginning to recognize it in my life at this point, there's a ton of pattern recognition that I'm, be, I'm having awareness around. Mm. And maybe, maybe some of your guests who might be 40 now, maybe they'll remember this podcast when they're like 60-something. Uh, and they'll say, God, I remember that guy, Danny, talked about pattern recognition. And my pattern recognition has gotten a lot better. Yeah. And it's an experience. And it's not something you can accelerate. And uh but the, the radiologist who's read tens of thousands of x-rays begins to develop, you know, a pattern recognition that is kind of almost indescribable. You know, it's just, yeah, it's hard to recognize, you know, you just have it because of all that experience and there's just no way to accelerate it. 
What I love about that story as well is, is never underestimate the power of rolling up your sleeves. And the number of times I've, I've seen, uh, or, you know, at conventions and, and, you know, people who are kind of just sit back and they just hope that magically stuff is going to sell itself. And then you see the other people that are actually willing to hustle. Right. And you know, that, that rolling up the sleeves can make a big difference, right? That could be a make or break for, you know, for a lot of people, obviously circumstance has to kind of line up as well. And you know, the patterns, but you know, the fact that you were willing to, to, you know, go down there, roll up your sleeves and say, Hey, we're going to, if we have to put these personally in people's hands, we're going to do it. And uh, that got you to that next level, which is uh, I think so inspiring. Um, I appreciate that. Yeah. Can you talk about what's coming next uh, for the op? Is, is there anything that uh, you can tease out at all uh, for our audience or? Uh, Yeah, we, uh, yeah, there is. And it's actually, you know, it's, it's become a little public, but, uh, I'll tell you a great story. So we've got, and you know him, you met uh, Tony Cerebriani. He's yeah. sort of our inventor relations guy. And uh, this guy, uh, Eamon Anderson, uh, meets Tony. And Eamon's got this game called Gnome Hollow. And there's an amazing story behind this mm. guy, Eamon, who's not a game developer, developing this game, which is getting a lot of it. And we don't watch it until August. But it's getting a lot of press and attention. And... Um, and so Eamon meets Tony and Tony is the world's nicest guy. And yeah, you know, he's a super this game, game hollow. And there's a lot of, I, I, I don't understand. I, I got to unpack more of the story, but I won't today because it'll take too long. Uh, <laughs> and I got to get, understand the story better, but this game, everybody was chasing this game in the industry. And Tony said, well, I can help you out. You know, I'll give you advice. Call me anytime. Um, and it's just trying to help this guy a neophyte in the game industry navigate his way through all these you know companies uh, that are chasing him to get the license to this new game and one day he looks at tony says well why don't i bring this to usaopoly and tony had never pitched him on bringing he was just trying to help this guy and tony says you know hey we would love it i was just trying to help you i didn't want to you know bias it and so we were the lucky guys to get a hold of this thing and there's a lot of buzz in the industry uh which you know, again, pattern recognition. I'm not recognizing this pattern of a guy who's never designed a game before, had a head injury that yeah. led to him, uh, you know, just having this passion and having this idea for a game and doing all the artwork around it. Then it becomes like the hottest game, you know, internally to that everybody's chasing. We're the lucky guys to get it. So we'll see where it goes. So Gnome Hollow launches at um, Gen Con in, uh, in August. Oh, and that's amazing. I don't know. I was with our marketing group the other day. I said, let's do like a flash mob uh, with all the sort of characters from the game that we show up somewhere. And so we're trying to, I don't know, I've challenged the team. You know, this is kind of one of the reasons I've come back. Let's do something crazy and special and just see where it goes. And um, you certainly from your TikToks, it seems like fun, something you really want to kind of bring, uh, bring in and inject in and, uh, you know, I get a kick out of some of these uh, these TikToks you're doing. I was, I was shocked that you were on TikTok, but you are, and you're you're quite active on it, which is uh, pretty amazing to see. Oh, I love this! I thought I was going to have to shamelessly promote myself. <laughs> uh, hashtag the Dane game. Uh, if yeah. you didn't get hashtag the Dane game on TikTok, um, you know, we're, we're having a lot of success on social media, and it's really helped launch a few of our games in ways I wish we could take credit for. It, but you know, games have become very popular, uh, sort of. Uh, 
for influencers or anybody else to post them playing games. And we've literally got hundreds of millions of views of people playing like Tapple. Yeah. Uh, and it's extraordinary. So we've sort of leaned into it. And uh, we had this influencer in my office recently that I got introduced to as a friend of uh, somebody on our staff. And uh, this guy's great, a guy named Novian Cherry. And Novian says, Dane, you got to have your own TikTok, don't you? And I said, what are you talking about? He says, dude, just, uh, you know, your personality and what have you. I don't know. He saw something I didn't see. So we um, we started doing some crazy TikToks. And uh, it's been a lot of fun. And uh, so, yeah. Uh, did you see the juggling one in the office? <laughs> no, I didn't see the juggling one. I'll look oh, over. dude, you got, I mean, it's my favorite <laughs> one. It's like one of the lower performing ones. But it's uh, I learned how to juggle when I was a kid. So I've. I walked through the, I won't give it away, but if, uh, it's funny. It's like the third or fourth one I posted a couple months ago. And, uh, I think it's funny. So I, 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 my wife calls me the best self-entertainer in the world. So, uh, (laughs) my mother, you know, I, I have an older brother, two younger sister. My mother used to say that my brother, he, he had to be held every second of the day when he was a little baby in his crib. I mean, he just had to have attention. And she said, Dane, you were just the opposite. I could leave you in your crib for hours and hours and hours and self-entertain. And uh, I guess that trait didn't go away. So I can self-entertain uh, pretty well. So. Well, for those who want to follow you, I'm going to put a link straight to your TikTok in our show notes. So please, the Dane game, please uh, follow Dane. Check it out, the CEO of The Op. I'll also put links, obviously, to The Op's uh, website. Uh, Dane, I want to thank you so much for your time. This has been just an absolute blast. I hope we can have you back on this podcast. And I want to wish you guys all the best with your new gnome game that's coming this summer. Uh, I appreciate that. As you can see, I hate doing this stuff. I hate talking to people. <laughs> Not at all. I could, I could chat with you all day. I love what you're doing. And congratulations on your success with your show. So thanks for having me on. Thank you. You take care. Cheers. Thanks. This has been an episode of the Board Game Binge Podcast, hosted by James Staley, produced by James Staley and Mike Bruner, with original music by Nick Smith. If you would like to watch these interviews live, simply subscribe to our YouTube channel, Board Game Binge, and you'll get access to live interviews, giveaways, and interesting board game content from across the industry. I can't wait for you to join us. See you next time.